Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 17th, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Nubo Evolve, Organizers Sent to Prison by Emily Anderson and Marissa Payne. Dateline Cedar Rapids. Nearly five years after the Nubo Evolve Festival featuring national recording stars and reality TV personalities turned into a financial debacle instead of a signature event, two of its key organizers were ordered Thursday to report to prison and pay over $1 million to a bank they defrauded to help bankroll it. Douglas S. Hargrave, 56, Nawa Pulliup, Washington, and Aaron McCrate, 47, now of Dothan, Alabama, each pleaded guilty last year in U.S. District Court to one felony count each of bank fraud. Hargrave was sentenced to 15 months and McCrate was sentenced to 18 months in prison. The two also are jointly and severally liable for $1,442,231.25 of restitution to be paid to Bankers Trust. At the time, McCrate was president and chief executive officer and Hargrave the finance director of Go Cedar Rapids, the nonprofit tourism and convention agency partially financed by the city of Cedar Rapids with public hotel motel tax dollars. The 2018 three-day festival featured headliners Kelly Clarkson and Maroon 5 and speakers including fashion designers Carson Cressley and Christian Serrano, filmmaker John Waters, woodworker Clint Harp, and U.S. Olympian Adam Rippon, among others. The festival lost $2.3 million after sales of tickets, some costing up to $375, and sponsorship revenue came up short. Of the losses, Bankers Trust was out about $1.5 million in loans, and speakers and vendors were never paid the $800,000 total promised. During Hargrave's plea hearing last year, he admitted that before the festival, he sent a fraudulent budget under McCrate's direction to Bankers Trust in support of a request for an increased loan. The budget misrepresented how many tickets already had been sold and how many more tickets were anticipated. McCrate's defense argued in his sentencing Thursday that he did not direct Hargrave to create the false budget, but he acknowledged he was aware of it and that as the CEO, he signed a promissory note for the loan that resulted from it. An email to the bank included false projection, projected of $475,000 in sponsorship income, more than $1.7 million in concert sales income, $475,000 in production expense, and $65,654 in profit a criminal complaint stated. The bank proved an increase to an initial loan from $1.5 million to $1.75 million. After the event, Go Cedar Rapids couldn't repay the loan or $800,000 promised to vendors and speakers. Bankers Trust fired its local president and Go Cedar Rapids fired McCrate and Community Events Director Scott Tallman, saying it had been misled. The tourism agency later went out of business. During Thursday's hearings in federal court, both defendants requested diminished sentences without prison time, arguing they have shown in the years since that they have learned from their mistakes and they are contributing members of society. I can't tell you how embarrassed I am to be here, 
how surreal this whole thing is, Hargrave told Judge C.J. Williams. I understand what I've done. I accept the recourse that I'm faced with. McCrate's defense also referenced health challenges faced by his wife that make it difficult for her to work and challenges faced by McCrate's children that rely on health insurance from his current job as president of the Dothan, Alabama Tourism Agency. You have no reason to fear me ever going astray. I put my family in jeopardy, and that will always stay with me, McCrate said. Please have mercy on my wife and kids and allow me to continue to care for their needs. Judge Williams said he believed prison time was necessary for both defendants in order to reflect the seriousness of the offense and deter others from committing similar crimes in the future. Williams said both men had gotten in over their heads on a venture they weren't prepared for, but instead of acknowledging the financial issues and reevaluating, decided to commit fraud and gamble with the bank's money. Visit Dothan, where McCrate went to work as a tourism president and CEO after being fired in Cedar Rapids, previously said it was standing behind him and would allow him to keep his job if he wasn't sentenced to prison. In a statement Thursday, the organization's board of directors said it had accepted McCrate's resignation from Visit Dothan. His resignation was effective immediately, and the organization said it will search for a a replacement. The board appreciates the job that Aaron has done during his tenure here in Dothan, the statement said. According to the board, during McCrate's stint at the helm of Visit Dothan, sports tournaments and hotel room reservations grew and visitor spending increased. He oversaw a new visitor website, improved sports facilities, an enhanced visitor's guide, and an international BMX event, among other things. Aaron passionately and effectively lifted... Visit Dothan to be the catalyst for visitor and sports growth in our area and instituted many positive initiatives, the board said. As a result, our organization and our community benefited tremendously from his work, dedication, integrity, and collaborative community support. After the festival failed and Go Cedar Rapids went out of business, Cedar Rapids brought in the company Venue Works to revamp the local tourism bureau, and managed the Cedar Rapids Tourism Office. The City Council voted in 2021 to extend a contract with the management company through October 4th, 2025 to continue marketing the area and attracting visitors through conventions, sports, and other events. Since its 2018 inception, VenueWorks has been contracted to book events for city-owned performance venues, including the Alliant Energy Powerhouse, Paramount Theatre, McGrath Amphitheater, and the Cedar Rapids Ice Arena. The Cedar Rapids Tourism Office originally was pitched as a placeholder, while tourism officials explored best practices and formed a new independent bureau to replace Go Cedar Rapids. But as it saw success in booking a number of concerts, large-scale business conferences, and sports events, city officials have opted to stay the course. For fiscal 2023, the budget year that will end June 30th, Cedar Rapids paid the Tourism Office $1.2 million in hotel-motel tax revenue. The city reaps from overnight guests, as the agency is the main driver of hotel stays in Cedar Rapids. We've been very pleased with the work that Cedar Rapids Tourism Office is doing and venue works, and there's no intention to change course at this time, City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said. You can comment on this article at 319-398-8800.
1-800-273-8328. The next article is titled, House Bill Sets High Hurdles for CO2 Pipelines, by Caleb McCullough. Dateline Des Moines. 22 Iowa House lawmakers, including Speaker Pat Grassley, proposed Thursday enacting legal hurdles that a carbon dioxide capture pipeline would have to clear before being approved in the state. The proposed GOP legislation, to be unveiled Monday, joins efforts in the Iowa Senate by a Republican lawmaker from Sioux Center to regulate CO2 pipelines, which renewable fuel advocates say are essential to the survival of the state's ethanol industry. The House would require pipeline companies to obtain 90% of the miles along their proposed route through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain authority to acquire easements from unwilling landowners. The measure also would block the Iowa Utilities Board from granting a permit to a pipeline company until a federal regulator has laid out new safety guidelines for carbon pipelines which could be a year or more from now. The proposed bill looks to address concerns from landowners along the more than 1,500 miles of carbon dioxide pipeline that three companies have proposed in the state. One of the three, Wolf Carbon Solutions, which proposes to build in Lynn County, has said it does not intend to use eminent domain to force the sale of land. Other provisions in the bill include... The appointed utilities board could not grant a permit for a CO2 pipeline unless it is in compliance with local zoning ordinances. CO2 pipeline companies must have successfully acquired all other state permits before being granted a pipeline permit. CO2 companies would be required to give regular progress reports on easement acquisition. Landowners would have more opportunity for compensation from eminent domain and options to challenge violations of restoration standards. Speaking with reporters Thursday, Representative Steve Holt, Republican of Denison, said the inspiration for the bill comes from opposition to using eminent domain to build privately owned projects. Holt said eminent domain should be used only for essential government services. The 90% threshold was established in part on recommendation from the Iowa Farm Bureau, Holt said, and because it's a number he thinks House Republicans support. I have an issue with other people's property being taken for what is an economic development project, and I think that's where we confuse public use for public benefit, he said. Last year, the House passed a bill that put a one-year pause on new permits for the projects, but the proposal failed in the Senate. Landowners and activists who oppose the use of eminent domain have been asking lawmakers to pass a stronger measure that would remove the power of eminent domain entirely from CO2 pipelines. Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa Chapter of the Sierra Club, said she thinks the 90% threshold does not go far enough. I'm glad that they are taking it seriously, but we really need to have the strongest thing possible – not just put a Band-Aid on it, she said. She also would like to see the limit at 90% of parcels rather than miles so that smaller landowners aren't disadvantaged. Democrats have said they would support legislation that bolsters landowner rights and ensures pipelines are safe. We are going to want to look at any piece of legislation to see that landowner rights are protected, 
to make sure that people have a say in how their land is used and that if we're using eminent domain, public good is a part of that conversation, House Democratic leader Jennifer Confirst said Thursday. Speaking to reporters Thursday, Governor Kim Reynolds did not say whether she would support or oppose the measure. I'm sure there's areas where we can tweak and make it better, but we just need to make sure that we're having an open and honest conversation about what the consequences could be moving forward, Reynolds said. Three proposed pipeline projects are in the process of requesting approval from the Iowa Utilities Board. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Carbon Express would build 680 miles of pipeline concentrated in the northern and western parts of the state. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would stretch for 900 miles from the northwest to the southeast corner of the state with offshoots along the way. The pipelines will shut carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to reservoirs deep underground in other states in order to meet certain low-carbon standards, take advantage of federal tax credits, and improve the profitability of Iowa's ethanol industry. In a statement, Summit spokesperson Jesse Harris said the company has received voluntary easements from 1,075 Iowa landowners along the route, accounting for 67% of the proposed route. Harris said the ethanol industry would lose $10 billion in a year without the projects. A full two years after we announced our carbon capture project, we remain hopeful that the legislature will not change the regulatory rules in the middle of the game, particularly with the overwhelming level of support we have among Iowa landowners, he said. In the Senate, Senator Jeff Taylor Republican of Sioux Center, has introduced a flurry of bills regulating CO2 pipelines, including Senate File 104, which would require pipeline companies to have 90% of easements granted voluntarily before using eminent domain. In the House, Representative Tom Gennari, Republican of Lamar's, has also introduced CO2 pipeline legislation. Legislation. The U.S. Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, a division of the Department of Transportation, sets safety standards for CO2 pipelines. The agency is in the process of reviewing its rules in response to a pipeline burst in Satarsha, Mississippi. Those rules likely won't be ready for at least a year, and Holt said he wants to hold off on permitting new projects until they are finalized. Our understanding is that there are new safety guidelines coming out within the next 12 to 18 months, and so we're concerned about waiting until those new safety guidelines come out, based upon some of the things that have happened recently with the pipelines, Holt said. The last story from the front page is Native Roadside Plants on Hold in an Iowa County by Aaron Jordan. Buried under a blanket of snow across Iowa, native grasses and prairie flowers planted in roadside ditches control weeds, reduce erosion, and save money on mowing, state and local officials say. But the majority of the Winnesheek County Board of Supervisors voted earlier this month to freeze funding for the Roadside Vegetation Management Program, started in 2016, because they say that money would be better spent updating snowplows and other county road equipment equipment. 
We're trying to make heads or tails of what's going on and put the funds where they need to be, Dan Langrick, chair of the five-person board, told the Gazette. If you've got a hole in your roof between the choice of fixing that or re-landscaping your yard, obviously you're going to pick the hole in your roof. The board voted 3-2 to two on February 6th to end the program, but had to rescind that action after county residents complained to the Iowa Public Information Board that the vote had not been included on the meeting agenda. On Monday, the board voted to freeze funding until members can hear a report March 13th from the county engineer about the cost of the program. High gas prices led Iowa to establish one of the nation's first integrated roadside vegetation management programs in 1988. Up to this point, roadsides in Iowa were mostly extensively mowed and blanket spraying with herbicides were often too costly to implement on a regular basis. Sprayings were frequently ineffective and contributed to an increased potential for surface water contamination. The Iowa Department of Transportation reported, the goal of IRVM program was to provide an alternative to typical roadside management practices. More than half of Iowa's 99 counties now participate, and there are more than 300,000 county roadside acres in the state managed this way. The way you can tell during the warm weather months is by the presence of native grasses like bluestem, as well as cornflowers and milkweed, as opposed to short-mown turf grass. Safety is always first, said Christine Nemec, roadside program manager with the Tallgrass Prairie Center at the University of Northern Iowa. You mow the grass closest to the road, but away from the road, native grasses and plants have advantages over turf grasses, she said. Native plants have deeper roots, which protect the soil from erosion during flooding and filter runoff from roadways. Milkweed and coneflowers provide food for pollinators, which help nearby crops reproduce. Plant residue left in the fall and winter blocks blowing snow from entering the roadway. The Kentucky Transportation Center published a study in June 2021, finding the state could save between $9 million and $24 million over five years by mowing less and planting pollinator-friendly plants on roadsides. The center proposed a new education campaign. Dubbed Kentucky's Buzzing, the goal is to provide the public with readily understood explanations of why pollinators matter and how the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet can improve their fortunes through conservation mowing, the study states. In Iowa, Jones County engineer Derek Sneed said in a 2021 video promoted by the Tallgrass Prairie Center, the county's roadside vegetation management program allowed the county to go from spending $60,000 on broad application of roadside herbicide in the mid-2000s to $20,000 per year to manage the native plant program. The state's Living Roadway Trust Fund provides grants to cities, counties, and other applicants to buy native plant seed or equipment or to pay for research on roadside vegetation. The Winnesheet County spends between $200,000 and $250,000 on roadside vegetation management programs, which includes salaries for two employees. But those employees do other tasks besides only planting and maintaining the ditches. Shirley Vermees, a Winnesheet County supervisor who voted against freezing funding to the program, said she hasn't seen evidence that returning to widespread mowing would save money. 
That cycle costs more in the long run for the county and creates more environmental damage and land damage and erosion and affects water quality, she said. Turning to page two, Storm Snarls Traffic with Heavy Snow and Wind by Isabella Zaluska. A winter storm with heavy snow and strong winds made for difficult travel Thursday, with eastern Iowa seeing some of the worst road conditions and highest snowfall in the state. A band of light to moderate snow began moving in from the southwest just before 2 a.m. By 7 a.m., Iowa City already had accumulated six inches of snow. The Cedar Rapids area had between three and five inches of snow as of Thursday morning. By late afternoon, Iowa City had accumulated eight inches, and snow was still falling. Cedar Rapids had more than four inches as of the afternoon, according to snowfall reports. The heaviest snowfall was from Iowa County through northern Johnson County and southern Lynn County, said Dave Cousins, a meteorologist with the National Weather Weather Service in the Quad Cities. We've had wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour, and that'll cause some additional blowing and drifting snow. So the snow that has fallen will be moving around, Cousins said. The blowing snow, along with the mixture of snow, ice, and slush, made for completely covered roads, according to the Iowa Department of Transportation. Two jackknife semis caused a blocked southbound Interstate 380 north of Boyson Road in Hiawatha Thursday morning. Traffic was diverted off the interstate at County Home Road. Roadways in the corridor, including Interstate 80 and much of I-380, were listed by the Iowa DOT as being completely covered in snow. Towing was not recommended in Lynn and Johnson counties throughout the day. Road conditions, traffic events, weather warnings, and more can be accessed through 511ia.org or with the Iowa DOT's 511 app. The winter storm warning was in effect until 9 p.m. Thursday. Cousins said the snow was expected to taper off between 5 and 9 p.m. Winds were forecast to die down after midnight. Low temperatures Thursday night were expected to bring wind chills as cold as 5 below zero today, but the cold won't last. Turning colder for Friday and then we'll be Warming back up again over the weekend, Cousins said. The next story is Trial for Man Accused of Shooting Deputy Cancelled for Snow by Trish Mahaffey. The trial for a Chicago man who is accused of robbing the Casey store in Coggan and shooting a Lynn County Sheriff's deputy seven times on June 20, 2021, was delayed Thursday because of a snowstorm. Peter Stifel The lawyer representing Stanley Donahue, 38, lives in Iowa County and couldn't get to Cedar Rapids on Thursday. Testimony will resume at 9 a.m. today. The prosecution will wrap up its case and the defense will start. Closing arguments will likely be Monday. Donahue is charged with two counts of first-degree robbery, attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of false imprisonment, willful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a peace officer trafficking in stolen weapons and possession of a firearm as a felon. According to the opening statement, the defense plans to show there is reasonable doubt that Donahue is the suspect from the robbery. Donahue is accused of forcing two clerks into a cooler and stealing about $300 in cash, 89 packs of cigarettes, car chargers, gift cards, and personal belongings of the employees, according to testimony. After shooting Deputy William Halverson, the prosecution says Donahue took the deputy's 
deputy service Glock and fled in his Dodge van. Donahue was arrested after an overnight 14-hour search that involved drones and police dogs, according to testimony. Authorities found Donahue after a TV news crew spotted him walking along Aldridge Road near Coggan and alerted the sheriff's office. If Donahue is convicted of all 10 charges, he faces up to 112 years in prison with a mandatory 65 years to serve before being eligible for parole. Gazette reporter Trish Mahaffey will continue her live coverage from the courtroom today. Medical malpractice awards capped under new law by Aaron Murphy. Dateline Des Moines. Cash awards for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications from medical malpractice lawsuits will be capped under a new provision signed into law Thursday by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Those non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases are now capped at $2 million for cases in which a hospital is found to be at fault and $1 million when the doctor is at fault. The new law, which becomes effective immediately, does not cap jury awards for economic or punitive damages. Reynolds, during a public bill signing event Thursday in her formal office at the Iowa Capitol, said that non-economic medical malpractice caps were a long time coming. Her statement was met by a knowing murmur from the dozens of doctors and healthcare officials who had been invited to join the event. Reynolds said the new law marks an important day for health care access in our state. We're in a much better position to recruit and retain physicians in our communities and really preserve access to care for rural Iowans, Reynolds said. Proponents of the legislation said it was needed to help contain insurance costs for hospitals and to help recruit and retain doctors. Iowa had been among the 22 states without a cap on non-economic awards in medical malpractice lawsuits, according to a 2020 report from New York Law School's Center for Justice and Democracy. Of the states that share a border with Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri have caps on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. Minnesota and Illinois do not. Of the roughly 160 average annual medical malpractice lawsuits that have been filed in Iowa since 2017, only 8% went to trial, according to analysis from the state's nonpartisan legal and fiscal analysis division. Representatives of the medical community have pointed in particular to two judgments from 2022 in Iowa, a $97.4 million award to a family whose newborn suffered brain damage when its head was crushed due to health care providers using improper procedures during delivery, and a $27 million award to a man whose case of bacterial meningitis was misdiagnosed as the flu. To recruit the best and brightest to keep these providers in Iowa, we need to have a stable practice environment, said Kevin Kincaid, the CEO of Knoxville Hospital and Clinics, who was invited to speak at the bill signing event. This bill is a crucial step forward in helping Iowa to be a more attractive place to practice medicine, a place for folks to move their families, and to be a part of this great state. We believe this bill is a fair compromise in balancing the need for access to high-quality care. The new law in the form of House File 161 
The new law in the form of House File 161 divided state lawmakers along unusual political lines. While most Republicans supported the bill, only one Democrat voted for it. It was opposed by a mixture of Democrats and the more socially conservative Republicans who likened the proposal to placing a monetary value on an individual's life. Opponents of the proposal also noted that other states with medical malpractice caps also are struggling to find doctors. They said insurance reimbursement rates are a far more pressing issue. The Republican state lawmaker who guided the bill through the legislative process in the Iowa House and supported its passage, Representative Ann Meyer of Fort Dodge, lost her five-year-old son to what she described as a medical error. I was very angry at that time as well, Meyer said during debate over the proposal. No amount of money will bring Nick back, and I feel that loss every single day. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on Friday, February 17th, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Harry Burkus, Cedar Rapids. Services for Harry Burkus will be held at 10 a.m. Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Entombment will follow in the mausoleum. A visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Monday, February 20th, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Dylan Eli Vasek, Springville. Dylan Eli Vasek, 46, currently of Springville, Iowa, died on Tuesday, February 7, 2023, when his vehicle was struck by a drunk driver. A memorial service will be held at Grace Community Church in Washington, Iowa, on February 18th. The family will be present to receive friends from 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, with the memorial service starting at 10.15 a.m. Following services, there will be a get-together hoorah lunch at the church and then a ride down to Oakland Mills Cemetery outside of Mount Pleasant for the interment, road conditions permitting. The Jones and Eden Funeral Home in Washington is assisting the family with arrangements. Online condolences may be sent for Dylan's family through the web at jonesfh.com. A GoFundMe memorial has been set up for the family at gofundme.com slash e4b76ae8. Thomas W. McGrath, Maynard. Thomas W. McGrath, 81, of Maynard, Iowa, passed away on Tuesday, February 14, 2023, at Allen Hospital Hospice in Waterloo. A massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 21st at St. John's Catholic Church in Independence, Iowa. Burial will be held at Floral Hills Memorial Cemetery in Hazleton, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. Monday, February 20th at the Rife Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory in Independence, Iowa. To leave an online condolence, please go to Rife Family Center. Dot com under obituaries. In lieu of flowers, donations to the Alzheimer's Association would be appreciated. Aaron M. Fagan, Monticello. Excuse me, it's Eric M. Fagan, 
Monticello. Eric M. Fagan, 45, of Monticello, passed away Thursday, February 16, 2023, at his home after a courageous battle with cancer. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 19th at Kramer Funeral Home in Monticello, where a parish vigil service will be held at 3 p.m. Visitation will continue at the Sacred Heart Church in Monticello from 10 to 11 a.m. prior to Mass. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, February 20th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Monticello with burial at Oakwood Cemetery. The Reverend Paul Baldwin will officiate. Kramer Funeral Home in Monticello is assisting the family and information is available at KramerFuneral.com. Memorials may be sent to the family in care of Kramer Funeral Home, P.O. Box 791, Monticello, Iowa, 52310-10791. In other deaths, Cedar Rapids, Leland Fred Parazek, 85, died Wednesday, February 15, 2023, Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center, Cedar Rapids. Ely, Catherine L. Katie Miller, 88, died Wednesday, February 15, 2023, Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Iowa City, Donna Wheeler, 66, died Tuesday, February 14, 2023, Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City. Keystone, Beverly Tennessee, 63, died Thursday, February 16, 2023, Phillips Funeral Home, Keystone. Vinton, William Russ Dunlap, 65, died Wednesday, February 5, 2023, Phillips Funeral Home, Vinton. Turning to the sports page, the headline is Humble and Grateful, the Boy State Wrestling Tournament Class 2A by Rob Gray, Dateline Des Moines. Gavin Jensen has been in the spotlight. He's basked in the glow of a Class 2A Iowa High School Boys State Wrestling Tournament title match, and he's also been stopped short in the quarterfinals because of a torn meniscus. So the Williamsburg senior, 120-pounders last, almost three seasons on the mat, have taught him one thing. Humbling setbacks can deepen one's sense of confidence, not shake it. After the torn meniscus happened last year, it really got me down because I think I had a pretty good shot to make it to the finals again, said the sixth-seeded Jensen, who pinned number three, Ethan Skoglund of Sergeant Bluff Lutton, in the closing seconds of Thursday's state quarterfinal. But I realized that I had a year left, and I knew I needed to try my hardest to be able to get back there again this year. Hopefully, we can get that done. Jensen's head coach, Grant Eckenrod, said the battle with the meniscus issue lasted all of last season. Finally, at state, and one win away from reaching the podium. It locked up, said Jensen, and he had to the injury to default. He'd narrowly finished second at 106 the previous season. He could not get unlocked, Eckenrod said. We tried and tried, even for the wrestleback, and couldn't get it done. That painful moment could have shaken Jensen. Instead, it spurred him to greater growth. Now he's ensured of at least a sixth-place finish after today's semifinal bout, but he doesn't plan to stop. Yeah, it definitely did teach me to be humble, Jensen said. 
and just be thankful for the opportunity to be here again. Several Gazette area wrestlers in the Class 2A field made the most of Thursday's quarterfinal-based opportunities. They are South Tama's top-seeded 195-pounder Gavin Bridgewater trailed K.J. Fry of Clark Osceola Murray 4-2 early, but quickly countered to finish with a flourish and win 11-6. I felt him starting to break at the beginning of the third, and I knew in that instant that no one could hold up with my conditioning, said Bridgewater, the runner-up at 220 last season. North Fayette Valley's fifth-seeded 132-pounder Nick Coke won by decision over number four Bo Codem of Sergeant Bluff Lutton, 6-0, to ensure a top-six finish after placing eighth at 126 last year. I just do what I do and really go with the flow, said Coke, who also excels at football and golf. I aim to be high, but at the end of the day, it's just a sport to me. I just like doing it as a fun hobby. Union Community's top-seeded duo of Braden Bonsack at 106 and Jace Hedeman at 113 won by identical major decision scores, 10 to 1, to advance to the semis. Hedeman won the state title at 106 last year and is 90 and 0 as a freshman and sophomore. Consistency and discipline, Hedeman said, that's what it all comes down to. Colin Cassidy of West Liberty at 113, Amari Chavez of South Tama, 126, Jace Jaspers of Mount Vernon, 126, Bradley Style of Decorah, 145, Cooper Sanders of Vinton Shellsburg at 152, Carter Straw of Independence at 160, Cameron Guther of West Delaware, 285, and Corver Hopke of Independence at 285, also advanced to the semifinals. In Class 1A, the headline is Neighbor Highlights Alburnett's Strong Round by K.J. Pilcher. Dateline, Des Moines. Alburnett's Brody neighbor flexed and released a celebratory yell. The excitement was almost palpable. It was contagious, causing Pirates coach Clayton Rush to approach the center of the mat for a congratulatory hand slap before a neighbor could shake his opponent's hand. Emotions peaked for good reason. Neighbor avenged two previous losses to Northland's Kale Bridgewater with a dominant 9-3 decision in a 138-pound quarterfinals of the Class 1A Boys State Wrestling Tournament Thursday at Wells Fargo Arena. The victory secured his second straight top-six finish. I was happy to make it back to the semifinals, Neighbor said. We've been working hard at it. We beat him, obviously, so we're pretty happy about that. I'm glad all that hard work I've been putting in finally paid off. Rush couldn't help but feed off Neighbor's elations. Rush capped a water bottle for a few times before roaring, let's go, to to the Alburnett fans. One step closer to the senior's ultimate goal. You see the excitement from the wrestler, Rush said. You get so much joy out of it. Bridgewater had Neighbor's number the last month, winning 4-3 in a duel and 9-5 in the district final. He even scored the opening takedown for a 2-0 lead. Neighbor took control from the waning seconds of the first period to the final whistle. You have a kid who he's never been beat, Rush said. 
He made some adjustments that were match-changing. That's the reward for a coach. The goal was to stick to his strengths and neutralize what Bridgewater does best. Neighbor attempted to attack and thwart Bridgewater's tilt from the top position. I just stuck to my offense, Neighbor said. I knew what I was good at and hit all the stuff I was good at. Neighbor's win highlighted a strong quarterfinal round for the Pirates. They went 4-2 and two overall, advancing Rowdy Neighbor, 113, Preston Klostermeyer, 126, and 152-pounder Carson Klosterman. All three lost in the quarterfinals last season. Rowdy Neighbor and Carson Klosterman posted 15-0 to zero technical falls. Bring the fight and you'll be in position to be successful, Rush said. They take to it and apply it. Albernat ended day two in fourth place with 52 points. Don Bosco remained in the lead with 87, 13 ahead of Nashua Plainfield. Wilton is third with 68. Lisbon rounded out the top five with 56.5 points, moving top-seeded duo Brandon Paez at 120 and heavyweight Wyatt Smith into the semifinals. Paez thumped Lake Mills Hayden, Hayden Hegelson 16-0 and remains in contention to become a four-time state finalist and a three-time champion. Smith improved to 49-0 with his second straight pin, sticking ACGC's Peyton Jacoby in just 1 minute 10 seconds. He earned his first semifinal appearance, falling in this round a year ago. I've never been here before, Smith said. It's nice to be able to compete and dominate and not to fight to just be on the podium, but fight to be on the top. Smith and Piaz held their seeds, while Midlands, 182-pounder Caden Ballou and MFL Marmax, Carter Decker at 145 have blown up their brackets. Ballou entered as a number 15 seed and has rolled through the number 2 and number 10 seeds to secure his first podium spot. He knew he was better than that number and embraces the underdog role to prove people wrong. You don't care what the seeds say, Ballou said. You just have to keep working hard, stay focused, and prove them wrong. Decker, seated 13th, echoed the same disregard to seeds. He concentrated on competing. It doesn't bother me that much, Decker said. You still have to go out and wrestle. His quarterfinal win was less dramatic. After giving up the opening takedown, Decker reversed Emmitsburg's Ryan Brennan and pinned him in one minute and nine seconds. In his fourth state appearance, he will be he will head home with hardware. Just keep climbing now, he said. Keep wrestling my hardest, and good things should happen. Highlands, Carlos Valenzuela at 132, Maquoketa Valley's Nathan Beats at 195, and East Buchanan heavy, heavyweight Cody Fox advanced to the semifinals. Valenzuela and Fox both posted pins. Number three, Valenzuela decked Dylan Stein of Lennox in 4 minutes 34 seconds, while number two, Fox, pinned Wilton's Alexander Kaufman in 42 seconds. Beats used three takedowns to beat Nottaway Valley's Ashton Honold 6-3. Turning to women's basketball, the title is College Game Day Coming to Carver by Jeff Linder. Dateline, Iowa City. It's sold out and has been for weeks. It's another top ten matchup. It's the regular season finale with, perhaps, Big Ten title implications. 
Need another layer of hype for the February 26th Women's Basketball Showdown between Iowa and Indiana? Here goes. ESPN announced Thursday the women's basketball version of College Game Day will be heading to Iowa City for that game. We've had our eye on this Indiana-Iowa matchup all season for College Game Day as an opportunity to showcase these outstanding programs and top players like Iowa's Caitlin Clark and Indiana's Mackenzie Holmes, said Patricia Lowry, ESPN Vice President of Production. We're thrilled to travel to Carver Hawkeye Arena for the first time, and we expect a great atmosphere with the way students and fans at Iowa support this program and this rivalry. Game day will originate inside Carver Hawkeye Arena starting at 10 a.m. for one hour. Ellie Duncan will host the show alongside women's college basketball commentators Andrea Carter, Rebecca Lobo, Carolyn Pack, and Holly Rowe, providing analysis, interviews, and features. Tip time for the game is 1 p.m. Dave O'Brien joins Lobo and Rowe on ESPN's Game Call. It will be the second of three game days this season for women's basketball. The first was at Knoxville, Tennessee for the UConn-Tennessee game. The third will be announced soon. Our program is thrilled to be one of three schools selected this season to have college game day on our campus, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said. It's a huge honor, and we are looking forward to the showcasing of our program on one of the best stages in sports. After Wednesday's 9 to 61 win, excuse me, 91 to 61 win over Wisconsin, Iowa, ranked number 7, is 21 and 5 overall, 13 and 2 in the Big 10. Number 2, Indiana, with a record of 24 and 1 and 14 and 1, hosted Michigan last night. The Hoosiers defeated the Hawkeyes in Bloomington 87-78 to on February 9th. The Hawkeyes have two road challenges before the Hoosiers and ESPN arrive in Iowa City at Nebraska on Saturday, at Maryland on Tuesday. Turning to the sideline column, college basketball. Trio of Hawkeyes earn big preseason honors. Dateline, Iowa City. Three Iowa baseball players, redshirt junior Will Christofferson, junior Ty Langenberg, and redshirt sophomore Keaton Anthony, have been named to the Big Ten preseason's honor list, the conference announced Thursday. The Hawkeyes were selected to finish third in the preseason coaches' poll. Maryland was tabbed to finish first, followed by Rutgers, Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, and Indiana. Only the top six were released. Christofferson made 13 relief appearances a season ago with a 14-2 record and a 5.52 ERA, fanning 25-6 walks. Langenberg went 7-2 with a 3.71 ERA last season with 74 strikeouts at Iowa's Sunday starter. Anthony was the Big Ten Freshman of the Year and a Freshman All-American a season ago, hitting 361 with 22 doubles, 14 home runs, 55 RBIs, and 46 runs scored. Iowa has a new pitching coach. College wrestling. Carr gets huge win, but Iowa State falls. Dateline, Columbia, Missouri. Iowa State's David Carr, ranked second in the nation at 165 pounds, took down top-ranked Keegan O'Toole of Missouri on Wednesday, but the Cyclones lost their big... 12 duel in more than two years. The third-ranked Cyclones 
won four of the ten bouts against number 10 Tigers, losing 23-12. to Carr won 7-2 with two takedowns against the defending national champion. Honors. Former Iowa SID Hattie enters Hall of Fame. Dateline, Iowa City. Former Iowa City Sports Information Director Phil Hattie was elected to the College Sports Communicators Hall of Fame. A native of Cedar Rapids, Hattie served as Sports Information Director from 1993 until his retirement in 2012. He was a co-CIDA member from 1971 to 2012 and previously received a 25-year citation and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the organization. Hattie began his career at Iowa as Assistant, Assistant Sports Information Director in 1971. More from College Baseball. Iowa Trades Pitching Coaches from Pro Ball by Jeff Johnson. Dateline, Iowa City. Lose a pitching coach to professional baseball, gain a pitching coach from professional baseball. That's how it has worked for the Iowa Hawkeyes, who begin their 2023 season this weekend in Florida. Iowa plays today against Indiana State and Saturday and Sunday against Quinnipiac. Robin Lund left the program in November after four highly successful seasons tutoring Hawkeye hurlers going straight to the big leagues, hired by the Detroit Tigers as an assistant pitching coach. Lund developed back-to-back Big Ten Conference Pitchers of the Year in Trenton Wallace and Adam Mazur, among many others. Both were taken in the Major League Baseball draft, Mazur in the second round last year to the San Diego Padres. Iowa had seven pitchers drafted the past two seasons, which is all you need to know about the job Lind Lund did in Iowa City. Head coach Rick Heller hired Sean McGrath to replace him. McGrath spent the previous two seasons as a pitching coach in the Seattle Mariners program, including last season at AA Arkansas. He also has college experience as a pitching coach at Elon, Massachusetts, Lowell, and Iona. Quite honestly, it wasn't that I wanted to go back to college ball, that I was done with pro ball, McGrath said. It was Iowa, the unique opportunity to work with Coach Heller and associate head coach Marty Sutherland in a program that has really established itself around its people and its process. McGrath was asked what it has been like to return to college coaching. Your eyes have to readjust a little bit, he said. It's no longer 93.7 miles per hour being the average fastball velocity. It's closer to 90. Guys do have really tremendous stuff here, and I'm really excited about it. A lot of these guys, their stuff will translate to the next level. I spent last year at AA, and if you look around at this staff, a lot of our starters, key guys, can pitch in AA in terms of stuff. Now it's just getting them a little better pitch by pitch, trying to get them committed to one thing at a time. Iowa appears to have talent on the mound again this season, though a lot of it is less experienced. Junior Ty Langenberg will be the team's top starter with Long Beach State transfer Zach Volkers. Volker, a probable weekend guy. There are a number of good young raw arms in Marcus Morgan, Brody Brecht, and Cade Obermiller among others, that McGrath will try to move forward as the season goes on. I think it's a really talented staff, although not as many of them are as battle-tested 
as we'd like to be going into the season, he said. I think we have a number of arms who have improved upon last year. We know Ty is going to pitch on Friday, and then we're trying to see what we can do to get some of the Ferraris going. Brody, Marcus, Cade, guys like that, trying to figure out where we can go to get them into the mix. Turning to girls' basketball, drop-off. What drop-off? By Jeff Linder. In terms of raw scoring numbers, few area girls' basketball teams graduated as much as Springville. The Orioles lost 73% of their points from last season's tournament team. Time for a massive plunge, right? Not exactly. We still have eight seniors this year, and these kids played with last year's seniors for three years, Orioles coach Christina Zaruba said. We knew these kids had it. They just had to show that they had it. They've shown it. The runner-up of the always competitive Tri-Rivers Conference West Division, Springville, 19-4, and has closed with a rush, nine straight wins, 14 in its last 15 games, and a berth in the Class 1A Regional Semifinals. The Orioles play at Montezuma in one of the area's premier games tonight. Springville's senior crew includes Molly Stamp, 12.1 points per game, and Isabel Guerrero, 9.8 points and 4.2 steals per contest. The addition of freshman Rowan Jacoby at 13.0 points and 8.3 rebounds per game has been timely. The Orioles will contend tonight with a Montezuma outfit that averages nearly 27 three-point attempts per game. In its two regional routes thus far, the Bravettes were 27 of 57 from long range. We need need to get on their shooters, Zaruba said. They don't just shoot it from the three-point line. They shoot it from deeper so that you can lead to some crazy long rebounds. The early rebounds of the small school postseason have contained two notable, if not major, surprises. First, Edward Colesburg knocked off number 10 Elkader Central in a 1A quarterfinal. The Vikings, 12 and 11, will play a rubber match with Maquoketa Valley, 15 and 9, tonight at Delhi. The girls have been playing well, Ed coach Steve Putt said. We changed some things some personnel throughout the last third of the season, and we've won seven of the last eight. We don't fear anybody. We didn't fear El Cater. The Vikings own one of the area's top posts in junior Audrey Helmrichs, who averages 18.9 points and 14.1 rebounds per game and shoots 59.4% from the floor. Nobody has really stopped her yet. She works hard and has a nose for the ball, Putt said. She outworks her opponents, and demands the same from her teammates. The second surprise is West Branch, which knocked off East Buchanan on Tuesday and plays at Bellevue in a 2A semifinal tonight. It's been a tough season, but I'm proud of the way the girls have kept coming to practice and working hard, Bears coach Jared Tiley said. Bellevue will put a lot of pressure on you. They want to create turnovers and get easy baskets. I feel our conference prepares us for this time of year. Two teams in different divisions of the River Valley Conference, West Branch and Bellevue, did not play in the regular season. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February seventeenth, 2023. I am your reader, Katherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, 
iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thank you for listening.